You're listening to the Revolution Church Podcast. To learn more, including our gathering times in Crossville, Tennessee, visit us at CrossvilleRevolution.com. Well, we start a new series today. Uh, We're going through the book of Titus. If you're new to Rev Church, what we like to do about 90% of the time is preach verse by verse through entire books of the Bible. We feel like that is the best way for us to study the Bible together. And it does a couple of things. Number one, it keeps us from abusing certain subjects that we would spend too much time on in the flesh, right? And number two, uh, it forces us to deal with difficult scriptures and difficult subjects that we would probably avoid if we didn't land on them teaching this way. You know, I I haven't preached in three weeks, so you need a couple of warnings here. I preached not on a Sunday in three weeks. I preached a few other places. But uh, when a pastor comes back from being off that long, number one, I'm going to try not to be long. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to try to be a good steward of your time today. But also over the last three weeks with the new year coming in and everything, I've had some time to reflect on all kinds of different things. Just uh, I don't know if you'd refer to them as like mysteries, you know, things that I've just thought of and things that I'm trying to kind of unpack questions maybe. Like for instance, you know, the Vols played. Uh, over uh, 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 the uh, holiday, and they whooped Clemson, right? And you can see I'm wearing my orange and white Jordans, and so uh, that was awesome. But it made me, made me wonder, you know, which orange came first, the fruit or the color? Does anybody know? Like, you know, it's kind of like the chicken and the egg. I'm getting y'all warmed up. I thought about this. I thought about this. Here's, here's another thing I thought about. If someone weighs 99 pounds and they eat a pound of nachos, does that mean that they are 1% nachos? You know what I mean? Scientifically. Science. I don't know. I was thinking about this. If you drop soap on the floor, is the floor clean or is the soap dirty? Y'all know what I mean? Like, let me get different answers to that question in here. Along that same line, if you get out of the shower clean, how does your towel get dirty? You ever thought about that? Like, how... You should just be able to use the same towel the rest of your life, but my wife tells me I can't do that. I don't know. How does it get dirty? (laughs) Here's a question. If two vegans are arguing, is it still considered a beef? (laughs) I don't have to worry about the vegans coming after me in Las Vegas, right? So. Think about this. I heard rumors that Apple was going to make a car. Well, does that mean that that car will still have windows? Are these dad jokes? I don't know, y'all. Last one that I was thinking about, um, Matthew McConaughey, one of my favorite actors. And based off the subject that I'm preaching on today, you'll see why I kind of thought of this. If Matthew McConaughey was a pastor, would he say, all rise, all rise, all rise? You know what I mean? (laughs) Dazed and confused. Like, yeah. Mysteries of life. Well, the book of Titus is going to answer a lot of mysteries for us as we go through this book over the next five weeks. And really, to summarize the book of Titus, it really points out the conduct for believers, especially as it pertains to how we interact and how we act inside the church. 
Today we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and as we go through this book, we're going to get into some subjects that are pretty controversial uh, and some subjects that are going to really help us in our walk. So let's start in verse 1. We're going to go verse by verse through this like we always do. Uh, You guys ready? Say, I am. Paul, who wrote this letter to a young pastor named Titus, says this, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Now, stop right here. In verse 1, Paul starts this letter by giving a description of himself. And in Paul's description of himself, what we find and how it instructs us today 2,000 years later is we find Paul gives some clues as to the qualities and the attributes of what a pastor should be like Paul. Um, When it comes to someone having the title of pastor, I think that that title pastor is too loosely used in the church today. Maybe I'm old school. Maybe I'm just a grumpy old man now. Somebody sent me a t-shirt in the mail from Amazon over a Christmas uh, that said, get off my lawn. Thank you to whoever did that. You know what I mean? And so maybe. But I just feel like the term pastor and the title pastor, as we're going to see as we go through this and next week when we talk about eldership in the church, Um, it's not something that's to be used loosely because not many people are called to be a pastor. At one church, I saw where they were serving cotton candy one day, and a guy had a shirt on that said, Pastor of Cotton Candy. And I get it. There's nothing inherently sinful about that. But to me, uh, the phrase pastor and the title pastor should be something that should be seriously considered. Uh, In the book of Titus, what we're going to find, especially over these next couple of weeks, is there are standards and qualities that pastors need to have in order to have that title. It's kind of crazy if you think about the fact that we test you for your driver's license, but in the church, in most instances, especially in America, there's no test, there's no standards that need to be in place for someone to be a pastor. Uh, it's this title that's just thrown around. A lot of guys give themselves the title pastor. And if I'm being honest with you, I think there's a lot of people that refer to themselves as pastor that are fake, that aren't really called to do it. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul starts to answer the question about how we can know if our spiritual leaders and our pastors are worth following. The first thing he does is he gives us two qualities of a pastor, two things that really define who a pastor is and what he does. Number one, he uses this phrase. He says, I'm a servant of God, and in saying he is, we know that other pastors are supposed to be too, a servant of God. The Greek word for that, better translated, would be Paul is a bondservant of God. Now, you've got to understand how strong this language was for the day because in the Gentile culture, which is where this letter was going to be read, was to mostly Gentiles, servitude was a fate that was worse than death. It's been referred to before that slavery was a social death. In fact, this is why Roman soldiers, when they were in the middle of a battle and they were losing the battle, they would commit suicide because that was considered an honorable death as opposed to being in slavery and captured by the enemy. Well, Understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying a true pastor knows that there is no greater honor than bearing the title bondservant of God. Paul is saying, my freedom and my calling comes from the fact that I'm a slave to Jesus. You hear a lot of people, especially in the South in our culture, 
refer to pastors as reverence. Hey, Reverend Josh, Reverend whatever, it's kind of a dated term, but the term reverend, if you actually study it in Scripture, is, a, is really a title that is exclusively for God. A better title for a pastor would be bondservant. That's a better title. So number one, he says that a pastor is a bondservant or a slave to God. And number two, he uses this phrase. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the phrase apostle, there's a few different definitions, and there's a lot of different viewpoints on apostle. We don't need to disagree on those. I believe, and I don't have time to unpack all those different viewpoints about whether or not it means somebody that's actually seen Jesus and how many apostles were there. Was Paul one of them? Was Judas one of them? So on and so forth. But I believe what Paul is referring to here is what's used in the Septuagint version of the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, where when it uses the term apostle, this is what it means. This is the definition of that word apostle in the Greek. It referred to someone sent to accomplish a task on behalf of the sender. So in other words, what Paul is saying is, number one, a pastor is a slave to God, a bondservant to God. He does what God tells him to do. He dies to himself. Number two, he is sent to accomplish a task on behalf of God. In other words, you've heard this phrase before, especially in the South, they're called to ministry. You ever heard that phrase before? Like pastors have to be called to ministry. Well, this is what Paul is saying. You've got to be called to be a pastor. Now, the word ministry is a nursing term in the New Testament, and everyone is called to ministry if you're a Christian, but not everyone is called to be a pastor. It is a special calling that is reserved for just a few select people. John Calvin said this once, if one is to be considered a true pastor of the church, of the church, it is necessary that he consider the secret inner call, conscience, only to the minister himself. So if you're if you're going to be a pastor and you're essentially going to be in full-time ministry, what Paul is saying is you better make sure you're called to do it. Don't romanticize it. Don't, don't think that it's something that it's not because when you're a pastor, the highs are high and the lows are low. When I have young men come to me and they say, man, I think I'm called to ministry. I want to preach. I always look at them and the first thing I say is you better make sure, man. You better make sure. Because if you get in this thing and think you're called and you're not called, you'll be out in no time. You will be out in no time. If you think it's all about preaching and getting all the glory and getting to speak every single Sunday, that's such a small fraction of what we do. Think about being a pastor, y'all. Your job is never complete. Until everybody in the whole world gets saved, your job is never done. Think about this. You can never complain about your boss. If you're a pastor, you can't be like, Freaking Jesus, man, he's telling us to do all this stuff. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He just, yeah, he doesn't know what it's like down here. You can't say that. You can never claim that your product is defective or there's another product that's better because our product is the gospel, right? And it's like so perfect, you know? It's basically all the failures, all the things are on you. This is why Paul says you've got to be called. I did some research and I read several different surveys and studies, secular ones and Christian ones. And what I found was when it came to the job of being a pastor, particularly a senior pastor at a church, um, it ranked anywhere from the second to the fourth hardest job in America. The lowest it got to was the fourth. And, and most of the time, it was like the second or third hardest job. 40% 
of full-time pastors drop out and go back to secular work within five years. You know that? 80% of them within 10 years are out of ministry completely. Why? Because ministry is tough and it is a special calling. It is a special calling. If you're going to be a pastor, listen to me in here. If you're going to go into full-time ministry, be ready and make sure you're called because you are scrutinized from top to bottom. I've told you guys this before, that the greatest fear that people have is public speaking. You know what the second greatest fear is? Death. You know what that means? At a funeral, they would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. Y'all know what I'm saying? Anybody in here ever said anything stupid before? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Mm, Everybody's not raising their hand. Let me ask it different. Is anybody sitting next to someone that said something stupid before? Raise your hand. Mm, Now the hands go up. Hang out at Rev Church for a while, and you're going to find that I say a lot of stupid stuff. I appreciate you guys giggling. That makes me feel good. I can hear it through the crowd. Amen, Rev Church. It's all on record. It's all in front of a bunch of people. I can't deny it. I can't get out of it. If I say something goofy, it's goofy. And all of us would. So make sure you have a call on your life is what Paul is saying. You're a slave. You're a bondservant to God. And you have a call on your life. So those are some of the attributes of a pastor and the qualities of a pastor. But secondly, he tells us what the goal of a pastor is. Here's the job description. This is what a pastor is supposed to use his time doing, okay? And notice, like as I preach through this, and we'll talk about this in a minute, think about what's left out when it comes to the Americanized version of what a pastor should spend his time on and all of his focus on. Number one, he says, I'm to further the faith of God's elect. Pastors further the faith of God's elect. When it throws the, the word the in front of faith, what it basically says, long story short, without me getting in and having to explain it and spend much more time and go over on time, is number one, pastors want people to get saved. They want people to know Jesus. You recognize that value? That's our first value at Revolution Church. We want people to know Jesus, find freedom, discover purpose, make a difference. You're going to hear all those today. But they want people to know Jesus. Number two, it says that he wants to further the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Again, long story short, not not unpacking this and going over, what that means is Paul's call is not just to get people to raise their hand at an altar call and repeat a prayer or fill a card out and say they got saved. He also wants people to further their knowledge. He wants them to get discipled. He wants the the outward behavior to match their inward belief. He wants them to be changed. Tony Evans, Pastor Tony Evans says this, spiritual growth is a life to be lived, not just a lesson to be learned. So a true pastor isn't just about packing a bunch of people out and getting a bunch of numbers. It's about lives being changed. Another another pastor said learning takes place when an individual's behavior changes as a result of gaining new information. So Paul says, I don't just want to preach. I want people's lives to be transformed. His role was not just bringing people to belief in Jesus, but watching people's lives become more like Jesus after they get saved. Now, there's a third goal of a pastor that's in the next verse. So let's read the next verse and uh, talk about that. This is is an unusual verse because sandwiched in the middle is a truth about God. So let's read it in verse 2, verse 2, not verse 3, verse 2. Everybody with me? Say, I am. 
It says, in the hope of eternal life, this is Paul's third goal as a pastor. He wants people to be in the hope of eternal life, which God, and here's the thing that's nestled in the middle that we'll talk about, who does not lie, and then he goes back to his third goal, promised before the beginning of time. The third goal of a pastor is to get believers ready to go to heaven. This sounds simple, right? He wants people to be ready to stand before God at the judgment seat and give an account. He wants to get them ready to go to heaven. So to summarize, let's do this in a phrase. Here's the goal of a pastor. Paul and pastors want people to get saved, to grow and change, and get ready to meet Jesus. There's the job description, Rev Church. There's the job description. We'll talk more about that here in just a minute. But think about what in America we have made the job description of a pastor and the goals of a pastor. Okay? Not that they're necessarily bad. Raising money's not bad. Building buildings. I mean, we're in the middle of one right now, right? But here's the main thing. The main thing is we're doing it because we want people to get saved. We want people to be more like Jesus. And we want people in Cumberland County to be ready to meet God one day. Amen, Rev Church? Now, nestled in the middle of this verse is, it says, God who does not lie. Have you ever heard the phrase or the question before, can God make a rock so big that he can't move it? Has anybody ever heard that question before? It's kind of a futile question, and and it's a question that's meant to kind of trip you up or something like that. I can't stand stupid questions like that. It just makes me want to ground and pound people when they ask that. If you ask that, it's okay, though. It's just weird. It's like you're just looking for an out to not believe in God. But here's the idea behind this. Really, the idea behind that question is, is there something God can't do? Yes. The Bible tells us there's several things that God cannot do, and this is one of them. We don't have enough time to go over an exhaustive list, but certain things like God cannot sin, God cannot be unjust, God doesn't change, God can't get tired, and right here it tells us God does not lie. In other words, God will never break a promise. In other words, you can take his promises to the bank. If you weren't here during our spiritual warfare series, maybe you're new to Rev Church, you're joining us online for the first time, we would encourage you, go back and watch our eight-week spiritual warfare series. If you need to be encouraged and know about the promises of God, we quoted so much scripture and all those were really about the promises of God. Things like, if you know Jesus, you are never alone. He promises you that. Things like, God will give you a peace even when you're going through difficult things. Things like, if you're in here and you don't know Jesus, then you're promised if you surrender your life by faith to Christ, He will save you. Things like, if you're going through pain in your life right now, God will always use it for gain in believers' lives eventually. Amen, Rev Church? Go back and watch that if you want to be encouraged. Now, the caution is, and we give this every time we kind of get fired up about this, is be very careful with the promises of God and trying to do two things. Number one, don't take a promise that was meant for someone else, especially out of the Old Testament, and try to apply it to your life. It's really easy to take verses of Scripture out of context and say, well, that fits my situation, so I want God to do this for me. If you do that, you're going to struggle in your faith. Secondly, don't try to control the timeline for God's promises. Anybody struggle with that? I want that promise now. I want that peace now. I want this now. 
I want God to tell me now how he's going to use this pain in my life. you got to wait on God because his timing is perfect and you can't control it. But God is not a liar. You can bank on his promises. Now, what we've talked about with pastors is the why behind what they do, really. This is why pastors do what they do, because they're a slave to Christ. They want people to get saved. They want people to get discipled. They're called to it. They can't do anything else. They're going to be miserable. Even if they go make a million dollars, they've got to be in ministry because that's what they're called to do. Now, in verse number three, Paul gives us the how. How are pastors supposed to complete this and fulfill this job description? Listen to verse three. Y'all with me? Say, I am. He continues after he's talked about, hey, I want people to get ready to go to heaven. And he says, and which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light. Everybody say brought to light. One, two, three. Brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. How is he supposed to do it? Well, God has commanded him through preaching to bring the word of God to light. That's what the NIV says. The Berean Standard Bible says it this way. In his own time, he has made his word evident. Instead of brought to life, it says made his word evident in the proclamation entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. The ESV gives a better translation when it uses a single word to describe what Paul is called to do and the how behind it. It says, and at the proper time, manifested. Everybody say, manifested, okay? Look at your neighbor and say, I don't know what's manifested with you. You know what I mean? Like, who uses that word anymore? You know what I mean? Like, it's like a Game of Thrones, King Jimmy kind of word, right? And so, and at the proper time, manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. Brought to light, made his word evident. The word manifested is the Greek word, I'm going to spell it because I can't exactly remember how to say it, P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. Sounds like Bonnaroo to me. That's how I want to say it, Fanaroo or whatever, but P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. And it literally translated means to manifest, or in other words, to make visible or to reveal or to disclose. This is a term that was used in the New Testament when it talked about the process of explaining a parable, for instance, the parables Jesus would give. The idea behind it is you're bringing something to light and letting people know about something that you already know, but they don't know until you show them. Think of it like this. Everybody knows who Superman is? So Superman's Clark Kent, but when he rips his shirt open, he manifests something. He lets you know something about himself that you didn't know. Another example would be, let's say you have a tattoo on your arm and you wear a long sleeve shirt and you're around somebody forever in a long sleeve shirt and then one day you show up in a tank top and they go, oh, I didn't know you had a tattoo. You knew you had a tattoo, but you just disclosed it to them. This is what Paul is doing with the gospel. He's manifesting God's word because he's commanded to do so. Now, this gives us a term that specifically describes what pastors are called to do. When you take the word manifest and you add God's word to it and you add the word proclamation or disclose to it, what you get is what we call expository preaching. Everybody say expository preaching, expository preaching. Doesn't that sound exciting, y'all? You know what I mean? 
Expository preaching means that when Paul preaches, when he when he does the how of how he does this job description he has, he's preaching through God's word. That's the idea behind it. The idea is, is he's preaching through God's word. In other words, he's preaching the Bible. He's giving people scripture. This is why at Revolution Church, we do books of the Bible. And we go verse by verse through books of the Bible because because we feel like that is the best way for us to study Scripture together. Now, I want to make something clear. The New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek. And Koine Greek was the most common language of the day. And what that means is anyone could read it. And what's clear is believers that had the same Holy Spirit that Paul had could read the New Testament in Greek, and they could get every single one of the nuggets out of Scripture. They didn't need Paul to tell them because they had the same Holy Spirit. So what I'm trying to tell you is, just because someone is a pastor like Paul does not mean that they have some mystical knowledge of the Scriptures that you can't have. What I'm trying to say is, the same Holy Spirit that's in you as a Christian is the same Holy Spirit that I have. And so when you read the Bible, the promises of God, the mysteries of God, all those things are available to you just like they're available to me. And the caution is be very careful when you go to a church, when you go to certain denominations and certain style churches where the pastor or the person that's on the platform is trying to make it sound like I have a special connection to God that you don't have and I understand the mysteries of God that you could never understand so you need to give me control over your life and look at me as a higher Christian than you. Does that make sense to everybody? Say amen. So pastors don't have some kind of mystical whatever, but they're to preach God's word. This is what we do. We preach the Bible. We preach the Bible. I heard a story about a lawyer, a doctor, and a pastor that went hunting together. And uh, they were in a field, and what popped out of the woods into this field was like a 15 to 20-point buck. And the lawyer and the doctor and the pastor all shot at this buck at the exact same time. The buck drops dead, and all three of them run out to the buck, and they're arguing about who shot it. One's like, it had to be me, it had to be me. I've been practicing, and I know it's me. No, no, it had to be me, because right when he dropped dead was when I pulled the trigger. It was just a millisecond after, and and they're arguing. Well, the game warden shows up, and the game warden's like, who shot this buck? And and they're arguing, they're telling the game warden, we, we just can't figure out who did it. We all shot at the exact same time. And the game warden says, well, listen, why don't you all go back to your tree stands? And I'm going to take a look and examine this buck. And then I'll come get you all, and I'll take a look at your guns and your bullets. And based off what I see, I'll be able to tell you, you know, who shot the buck based off, you know, how the, the bullet entered and all that stuff. Because I'm an expert on this. I've seen it for years. And they say, okay. So they start to walk back to their tree stands individually. And And the game warden looks down at the buck and examines it for just like 10 seconds. And he yells at all three of them before they could even get back to their tree saying, Hey, hey, guys, guys, come on back, come on back. I know who shot the buck. I know who shot the buck. They were like, really, who who did it? He said, well, it was the pastor that shot the buck. I know without a shadow of a doubt. They said, well, how can you be so sure? And the game warden says, well, the bullet went in one ear and out the other, so it had to be the pastor. (laughs) Had to be. 
That's the way a lot of sermons are, right? Listen, there's all different styles of preaching. We go through books of the Bible most of the time, but for years we did more attractional series where we did subject preaching, but we still based it on Scripture. Certain preachers are different. Some are more excited. Some are more calm. Some are funnier than others. But here's the key. When you're listening to a sermon, when you're effectively really judging a pastor, what you need to ask is, are they preaching from Scripture? Because I'll tell you this, a lot of this is subjective, right? A lot of it is, I like this kind of preacher. I don't like this kind of preacher. We've had thousands of people make their way to Revolution Church, and, and they like, I'm a realist. I understand. A lot of them don't like the way I preach, you know? Now, here's the, here's the key at Revolution Church, though. If their kid likes the kid's ministry, they're coming back. Y'all know what I'm saying? Like, like I'm a realist. I understand this. Mom and dad get in the car, and uh, dad looks at mom and says, man, that sermon was terrible. And mom looks at dad and says, yeah, the worship was awful. But if little Jimmy is in the back going, kids was awesome, where do you think they're coming next week, y'all? You know what I'm saying? Like, so we got to have six flags over Jesus with the kid's ministry because that's what li- like reaches lost people. But I'm a realist, and I understand that not everybody likes every style. But let me tell you this, if you find a church where even you don't even connect with the style of preaching, but the pastor, maybe he's boring, maybe he's older, maybe he doesn't click with you, but, but he's preaching scripture, I'd pick that any day over the guy over here with all the charisma, the big, nice building, tons of people coming, getting their ears tickled, great worship, everything you could ever want in a church and ministry, pick the guy that's preaching the Bible. Does that make sense, Rev Church? Everybody say amen. Because that's what a pastor is called to do, is preach the Bible. Chuck Swindoll says this, the preaching pastor translates the principles of God's word into daily life, first through his own spiritual growth and then by explanation from the pulpit. Let's do a review real quick because the next verse completely switches subjects and we're, we're not going to talk about really pastors until pastors really are elders next week. Um, and don't miss next week, y'all. Next week's a barn burner. You think talking about elders is going to be boring? We're going to talk about some stuff. Hey, is it okay for elders to be divorced? See how quiet it is? We're going to get into it next week. So don't miss. Don't miss this series. We're going to get into some crazy stuff, man. Book of Titus is nuts. Like, Second chapter is all about how men are supposed to disciple young men and so on, and young women, and uh, women are to disciple young women. And then chapter three, when do you kick a person out of the church? When do you ask them to leave? That's why we love going verse by verse. We get into stuff. Let's go over the attributes of a pastor, which really expands into the attributes of a church, okay? Um, a pastor is a slave to God that's called to accomplish a task. A pastor wants people to get saved, to be changed by truth, and be ready to meet Jesus. And a pastor preaches the Bible and lives what they preach. Make sure they're living what they preach as well. Um, Paul also says in this, and I'd be remiss if I didn't point this out, he talks about his call to preach when he says, the command of God our Savior. In other words, here's Paul again talking about the calling on his life and the purpose that God gave him. Now, as we go through the book of Titus, I want to make sure that I make this clear. While you may not be called to be a pastor, every single person in here has a call on your life, a specific purpose that God wants to do through you in his kingdom. 
And so I would encourage you. This is why we always talk about discovering your purpose to make a difference at Revolution Church. Hey, it's great if you're coming and you're sitting in the seat and you're hearing sermons and stuff like that, but we want you to get involved and discover your purpose and make a difference. Uh, We do that through the growth track here. So if you have not signed up for the growth, it's going on right now, so you can't like do it today, but start next week and start going through the growth track. Discover the gifts that you have, and we'll help you discover those gifts And you've got to figure out where you're called. Are you called to serve in kids and so on? But we want you to discover your purpose so that you can make a difference. Amen, Rev Church? And I'm getting ready to tell you uh, part of your calling in this fourth verse that every single believer is called to do. Let's go to verse 4. Everybody with me? Say, I am. We'll close with this. Paul kind of switches gears in verse 4, and he says, To Titus, my true son, in our common faith. And then the B part of this verse is a typical greeting that you'll find in almost every epistle or letter that was written in the New Testament. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. It'd be good in this opening sermon to tell you a little bit about who this letter is written to, Titus. The the name Titus actually in the Greek means honorable. And most theologians believe that that Titus probably met Paul on his first ever missionary journey. If you were here last year, we went through the book of Acts, and we talked about the first missionary journey that Paul went on. Well, most theologians believe that Titus met Paul on his first missionary journey, and Titus was a prime example of a Gentile, or in other words, someone that wasn't Jewish, coming to faith in Jesus and becoming a genuine believer of Jesus. In fact, Titus is mentioned a couple other times in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says that he took Titus with him to the council at Jerusalem that took place in Acts chapter 15. If you remember Acts chapter 15, there was this big uproar, and the church had to have its first ever business meeting about whether or not people had to be circumcised and basically become Jewish before they could become a Christian. Well, Paul takes Titus with him to that meeting to really show them an example of someone that was a Gentile, wasn't a Jew, but that really did love Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, it says that Titus came and comforted Paul uh, when he was going through a difficult time, which tends to show that there's a strong friendship there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Titus was sent to take a collection from the church in Corinth, which really shows the trustworthiness that Titus had and how Paul really felt like he was trustworthy. In fact, in that chapter, Titus is referred to by Paul as my partner and co-worker among you. It's a great compliment. But in the book of Titus, in the fourth verse, there's something nestled in there that's so powerful. Paul ramps it up a notch when he refers to Titus as my true son in our common faith. A better translation of this would be Paul saying, my true begotten child with respect to a common belief. In other words, what Paul was saying is, Titus is a child that is born into my family through natural means as opposed to adoption, even though they weren't related really. What he's saying is, Titus is a true begotten child of mine. He's just as if he was my real son naturally, and Titus is going to bear the traits of his father, and that is me. 
When, when Paul says common belief, what links Titus and Paul together is their common belief. Yes, he's talking about the fact that they're both Christians, but this phrase links Paul and Titus within the same bloodline. They're not related by blood, but Paul's saying this, he's saying, it's as if Titus is my real natural son and the same bloodline that I am. So in other words, what he's saying is, Titus is qualified to stand in my place. Titus is the heir to all of Paul's authority and rank, just like the son of a noble would be at the time. Now, Paul didn't have to go this far in his description of how he felt about Titus, so it begs the question, why did he do this? Well, one reason is very practical. This letter that was written to the church in Crete, Paul knew that all the letters he wrote to the churches would be read aloud. That when the church got together, much like we are here, one of the things that they would do is they would stand up and say, hey, we got a letter from Paul. And Titus is seceding Paul at the church in Crete. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being a young pastor and having to follow the Apostle Paul in running a church? Can you imagine the things that Titus probably heard? When's Paul going to come back and preach? We've heard you enough, Titus. I mean, could you imagine? Is he going to come help us work through our, our business meetings and stuff like that? So, so Paul is legitimizing Titus here. That's one practical reason. But it's clear, too, that I think, and, and man, is this not so applicational for Revolution Church. This has been our word for almost two years, that Paul is thinking about the legacy that he is leaving. That Paul, I believe, is thinking, man, I want Titus to be set up and have all the authority I have and even more. I want Titus to take the church in Crete further than I did, and I don't want things to go bad. It's like Paul is saying, I, I think the church there thinks that the church was all about me, the apostle Paul, and I'm trying to get them to understand, no, it's all about Jesus. And Titus is going to lead you to places further than I could when I was there. It was all about legacy. It's been said before that Paul wrote to Titus to do three things, to encourage Titus, to endorse Titus, and to instruct Titus. I have had so many different Pauls in my life, y'all. So many different Pauls in my life that have encouraged me, that have endorsed me and instructed me in my faith. So many in this church that mean so much to me, so many people that have walked alongside me and helped me figure things out. But there's two in particular that I was thinking about this week. The first one is my dad. My dad, Ken Cardwell, pray for him. He has back surgery at the end of this month. He had his prostate removed, and then he had heart surgery, and then he had cancer, and now he's a man. He, he, I told him, I said, you retired, and you fell apart, bro. You know what I mean? And now he's got back surgery. But my dad, my dad was the first one that really instilled Christian values into me and was a Paul in my life. Obviously, he endorsed me because I'm his son, but, but he encouraged me, and he instructed me. And what's so weird about that, let me encourage the parents in here that have been divorced. I saw my dad twice a month every other weekend for two days, four days total in a whole month. And my whole, my whole like, formative years of being developed 
I had no churching. I had nobody that prayed for me. My mom wasn't very spiritual. We didn't go to church. We didn't do anything. But those two weekends, every single month that I went to see my dad, guess what we did every Sunday? We went to church. We prayed over every meal. We talked about the Bible. Four days a month. I'm telling you right now, if my dad, my natural father, had not done that with me, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. Parents in here, listen to me. You've been through a divorce. You see your kids every other week. You got uh, joint custody or whatever. And the devil keeps telling you you're a failure. Your marriage failed. Your kids are going to be screwed up as a result. Man, you need to get out of that line of thinking. You need to start living in victory. And you need to start doing everything you can to be a Paul to your kids. The first one you're a Paul to, the first ones that you disciple, that you encourage, that you endorse, that you instruct, are your kids. They're your grandkids. But there are others outside of that that you need to be a Paul to. I thought about Pastor Chris Stevens. That's the second one I'll tell you about. I don't have enough time to talk about everybody that's encouraged me and helped me and stuff. But Pastor Chris Stevens is the pastor of Faith Promise Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. And they've got about five to 10,000 people that go to their church. And I went and met with him about six months before we even launched this church. And he didn't have to meet with me. He could have big-dogged me. And I'm not meeting with some, some little punk from a small mountain town. He, his, his church ain't going to blow up. You know what I mean? Some little goofy kid like me showing up when I was 33 when we planted the church going, we're going we're gonna to have thousands of people get saved in Crossville, Tennessee, the booming metropolis of Crossville, Tennessee, and we're going to rock and roll for Jesus. But he did. He loved me. He's encouraged me, man. I'll tell you guys, the church is going to be 10 in August, and I'm going to tell you this. I really do believe this. If it hadn't been for Pastor Chris being a Paul in my life, I think I would have quit. It's probably about, I can think of at least two or three times that I was so down. Man, I was just like, man, forget this. I'm going to move to a city that has a target where I can have restaurants to pick from and go to football games. Y'all know what I mean? Like, just feeling sorry for myself and forget this place, you know, like I was down. And he encouraged me. He, he took me one time to meet John Maxwell. Who am I? I'm this little guy with a little bitty church up in a mountain town, Crossville, Tennessee, and I get to meet John Maxwell because he knows him. He's very good friends with him. He endorsed me, in other words. We've been building this building. Y'all think I have a clue? Y'all think I have a clue about doing a poor kid from the inner city in Knoxville, Tennessee? I don't know about millions of dollars. I've never even... I don't even know. I've never had a zero in my bank account. You know what I mean? Like, well, I've had a zero, but just standalone zero. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I don't know about that. You're going to hear uh, Tuesday night how, how much more we need to raise before we can break ground. I'm like, how in the world do I do that? Man, he, he has instructed me through this and helped me through this. I don't know if I'd still be, like, I don't know if I'd be following Jesus and still be following Jesus if it weren't for the Pauls in my life. And the point is this. If you don't have a Paul in your life to encourage you, to instruct you, and to endorse you, you're going to go through periods in your walk with Jesus where you backslide. You're going to get down, and you're not going to have somebody to encourage you. You're, you're, you're going to go through periods where it's going to be very difficult to still come to church, to still read your Bible, to still pray, to still make the right decisions. The question that I'll leave you with, and here's your homework, is who's your Paul that is encouraging you, endorsing you, and instructing you? Who is it? 
The way the Bible teaches it, and we're going to see through the book of Titus, is you typically find if you're a male, okay, this is very important, okay? Nowhere in the New Testament does it say older males should disciple younger females unless it's your daughter, okay, and vice versa. Okay, that's a recipe for disaster. But if you're a male, you find an older male that's been there, done that, and you accept their instruction. Who is it? If you're, if you're a female, you've got an older female that pours into you. The second question is the opposite of the first, but boy, it's just as important. Who's your Titus that you are encouraging, endorsing, and instructing? Everybody listen to me in here. This is important. This is at the core of why the church is falling apart in America, by the way, and why there's so many churches that are dying. Because senior saints... have lost their purpose from God. And they don't have Tituses that they're encouraging, endorsing, and instructing. And there's nothing sadder than that. Nothing sadder than that. This is why there's, there's churches that have buildings, big old nice buildings, but there's 20 people over 80 inside, not hating on them. They're still Jesus' bride but they don't want anything to do with younger generations because they've lost their purpose. They've lost the idea that I'm supposed to have a Titus or several Tituses in my life that I'm pouring into. Hey, hey, more seasoned people in here, let me tell you something, okay? The book of Titus is close to my heart because my son's name is actually Titus. And I can tell you literally from experience, Tituses will drive you nuts, Okay? They will. They'll drive you nuts. But let me tell you what happens when you have a Titus in your life. You're getting up in age, and, and you can't volunteer in the kids' ministry because you just literally you can't physically do it anymore. You, you, there's certain things that you feel like you're not as sharp as you used to be, so you don't want to make a mistake, and so you don't do this and you don't do that. Maybe you're not involved in the ministry as you used to be. You get some Tituses that you're pouring into, that you're encouraging, that you're endorsing, that you're instructing. It's amazing how all of a sudden, it's almost like a parent with a kid that they're pushing to play sports. You know, those parents that live through their kids that have never graduated from high school. It's almost like you get your youthfulness back. And you start to pull for them in that way. You're living through them so that when God uses them in a big way, you're like, oh. That's a bigger deal than if that had happened to me. You start to pray crazy prayers like, God, I, I pray. I pray they don't make the same mistakes I make. Maybe they're not even related to you by blood like Paul and Titus, right? I pray they don't make the same mistakes I make, and I pray you use them in a great way. You know what that is? You start to focus on a legacy instead of focusing on yourself. Church has got to get this straight, or we are dead. We are dead. Not our church, but I mean the church in America. This is the reason for the decline of the church in America. is because there's no Pauls and there's no Tituses, like figuratively speaking. Who's your Titus? My son Titus, uh, man, he's, he's got so many Pauls in his life. I went to uh, a bachelor party for Pastor Donovan, and Pastor Donovan was on staff here. And so when I say bachelor party, don't think Vegas, woohoo, and all that stuff, okay, y'all? Um, we uh, went to, what do we do? And we went to some place in Cookville, and 
We didn't get feet massages or something like that. It was kind of weird, but we, we went to some place and sat in a salt room or something like that. And then we went to Nashville, and we had pictures taken, and we ate and went to Dave & Buster's and did all this fun stuff. And um, Pastor Donovan actually had my son be in his wedding. You see that, Paul? He didn't have to have my son be in his wedding. But that, that's a Paul to my son. And Titus is a Titus to, to Pastor Donovan. We went to, we went to uh, Dude Perfect a few years ago in Nashville. And uh, my son, I was like, who do you want to invite? And I've went over. I'm sorry, y'all. Thank you for being patient with me. But who do you want to invite? And I thought he was going to say one of his buddies from youth or something. He's like, Pastor Donovan. I want to take Pastor Donovan. You know why? Because Pastor Donovan's Paul to him. And when we were on that bachelor party, all he wanted to do was hang around Ian, who sits on the front row, takes pictures for us sometimes, comes to RYA, my son thinks the world of him, talks to him all the time, texts him all the time. That's the power of church, man. That's why we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. If you don't have a Titus or you don't have a Paul, you need to get in the men's ministry. You need to get in the women's ministry. You need to start coming to youth. You need to start doing those things. It's something we're all commanded to do. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for today. Uh, thank you for everyone's patience with me as I went over in this service. Uh, I pray you keep everybody safe. In Jesus' name. If you're encouraged by today's message, be sure and rate us and subscribe on iTunes.